so good to see you all here this morning. I feel like every Sunday when I show up, there are a couple people I scan the room that I don't know. Welcome. It is really good to have you all here this morning. We've been going through the book of Exodus, and if you take your Bibles and open them to chapter 5, we're going to be looking at a longer section of Scripture this morning. There's some theological challenges we have to deal with in the coming weeks that we'll get to. I think one of them is Pharaoh's hard heart. And this passage actually kind of pulls apart that issue and shows us how Pharaoh's heart begins to firm up, or at least he expresses the firming up of his heart. Before we dive in too much to the text, just ask you a simple question. <clears throat> in your own heart, why is obedience hard? Why is, why is it hard to do what God asks us to do? Why is it hard to submit to him? Maybe if you were to think of this in, in an evangelistic context and you want to consider, you know, speaking to a loved one or a friend and, and you you wonder why they won't believe. Why is it so hard for them to believe what Scripture says and and to trust in God and to submit to Him? Why is it difficult for the human heart to, to wrestle with who God is and kneel in faith before Him in submission? Like, what makes that so difficult for the human heart? I think that's kind of the issue with Pharaoh here this morning. The text we'll read in just a moment But when you consider the implications then, that has a long, long list of application behind it. Whether it's a battle in your own heart to overcome sin that you just seem to constantly struggle with, whether it's you pleading for your children to come to Christ and trust in God, there there is often something within the human soul that refuses to obey that refuses to believe, which I, I don't know that we should ever biblically disconnect those too much. The person who loves and trusts in God does obey him. Always. And so when we look at our, our disobedience, our disaffection, our faithlessness, our erratic nature, I mean, like maybe you're, as many adults are, you want to be thin and healthy, but exercise and saying no to good food is just something that's an ever-present, ever-losing battle. And you feel like your Christian walk is analogous to that and maybe even more concerning. So why? Let's look at Pharaoh first. And if we're, if we're kind of breaking two kind of combined themes together, this, this text is about defiance and discouragement. Look with me in verse 1 of chapter 5. Afterward, this is the after Moses has introduced Yahweh to Israel and said that he's going to rescue them, and they have this moment of worship and faith. Now he goes to Pharaoh, and and he's about to speak to him with Aaron. So afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. Now, you should notice if, if your translation does what most of them do, there's capitals on Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. So I'm going to reread that because it's pointing out the personal name of God. It's not like, um, it's not capturing the adjective Lord, it's capturing the name Yahweh. Okay, so we'd say it like this maybe. Um, the, pharaoh, the pharaoh said, who is Yahweh? I've never heard of him before. I have no desire to obey him. I do not know Yahweh. Moreover, I will not let Israel go, he says. Verse 3. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence and with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, 
You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in their past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to their lying words. So the taskmaster and the foreman of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for the straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task each day, as when there was straw. And the foremen and the people of Israel, whom the Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, Make bricks, and behold, your servants are beaten. But the fault is in your own people. But he said, You are idle. You are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you, still, you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, their daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron, who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge. Because you have made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hands to kill us. And Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done this evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will deliver them out of his land. <clears throat> Excuse me, out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as the God Almighty. By my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard their groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under their burden, out of the burden of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am Yahweh, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am Yahweh. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and the harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, go in. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. As you consider the text, in kind of its whole context, you see the defiance of Pharaoh and the discouragement of God's people. Pharaoh imposes a stiff and harsh response to Moses' simple request to release the slaves from bondage. If Pharaoh was sincerely worried about the army that could possibly rise up from within his people, he certainly would have said, please go quickly. Like, get out. You know, don't let the door hit you. Uh, but that's not at all what he's concerned about. I think it raises that question then, what is, what is happening in the text? And, and maybe more broadly speaking, what exactly is Moses doing? In this text, Moses doesn't look great. Remember, Moses is writing this through the inspiration of the Spirit. So Moses is telling on himself, right? He's, he's saying, hey, this didn't look pretty. We didn't respond well. And part of that was me. It was Moses responding poorly. Well, what led to this is the initial response by Pharaoh. Look down with me in verses 1 and 2. Moses and Aaron come. They enter into Pharaoh probably as representatives of the state of Israel. 
And so they get access to the king of the land. And you see Pharaoh's defiance rise up almost immediately. Moses and Aaron say, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh's response is simple. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. Moreover, I will not let Israel go. Let's just see if, as we work through this text, Pharaoh's heart is exposed in his words. And, and I would suggest to you, he declares a lot theologically in this text. First, his declaration is a declaration that God has no right or authority over him. In other words, it's, it's, it's defiance against the Lord's position. Who is the Lord? Who made him king over us? It's a little bit like children when older sister says to younger brothers and sisters, do this, and they say, who made you, mom and dad? You know, who says you can tell me what to do? This is exactly what Pharaoh is doing. It's an indictment against God's authority, namely his right to rule and to govern. Who are you to bring in this God named Yahweh and declare that I must obey him? Who put him as God over me? This is the same type of defiance you'd see that Proverbs 30 verse 9 warns us about. It's not the type of who is Yahweh like, man, I've never heard of that name before. That's new to me. Introduce me. This is the who does he think he is? What gave him the right to declare to me I must obey him? And of course, there are numerous ways in which God has the righteous right act to tell all of us what to do. But this is the essential proposition of Pharaoh. God has no right to tell me what to do. It's a declaration against the Lord's position. It's more than that, though. It's a declaration against the Lord's power. Look again at the text. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? I do not know the Lord, he says. Moreover, I will not let Israel go. Don't you just love that emphatic declaration? Now, you guys know the whole story, so I'm not spoiling it. He lets Israel go. Right? Like, we know this is coming. I, I'm, I'm pretty confident that Moses wrote the book of Exodus after they'd already escaped. And this is not his daily journal we're seeing. This is an account well into the future. And so that he's writing after they've clearly escaped. And, and he says, this is what Pharaoh said in the midst of it. He meets with us. We say, please let Israel go. And he says, I don't know who your God is. I'm not going to obey him, and I am going to win. Of all the dumb things to say to God, but we know who our God is. He's just being introduced to Yahweh, and he's declaring, I am powerful, and God has no power over me to make me do his will. I will do my will, and my will is that Israel stays in my land. God will not tell me what to do. It's a declaration against God's position. It's also a declaration, declaration against God's power. Moreover, he makes a declaration against God's prophetic word. For the first time in all of Scripture, you hear this formula of introduction. Go to verse 1. Moses and Aaron come in, and they say this to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord. This is a technical introduction to a prophetic word. And you'll notice even the first person, let my people go that they may worship me in the wilderness. Moses and Aaron are not saying we want the people of Israel to worship us. They are speaking God's word as though God were speaking himself to Pharaoh in the first person. God says to you, Pharaoh, let my people go so that they can worship me. This, this technical introduction to the prophetic word. Look at then Pharaoh's response in verse 9. The end of verse 9, pay no attention to what? Pay no attention to these lying words. We haven't gone very far from Genesis 3, have we? This feels like the serpent. You don't have to obey. God won't do that. His word isn't true. 
Pharaoh goes right after the prophetic words spoken through the mouth of Aaron and Moses, very likely casting doubt on whether they had experienced in the first person um, burning bush moments real communion with God. Calling doubt onto the promises that Moses has given to uh, Israel just moments before when all of Israel gathered and believed and worshipped. And now Pharaoh saying, do you really believe that happened? This is a lie. And it's causing you all to be lazy, so I'm going to double down. Notice then in verse 10, the arrogance. The taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, thus says Pharaoh. Did you catch that? Verse 1, Aaron comes in speaking for Moses and says, thus saith Yahweh. A few verses later, as Moses, or excuse me, as Pharaoh makes his declaration, as he turns his judgment and sends his ministers, his foremen, his slave masters out to preach his message, he says, thus saith Pharaoh. So Pharaoh is digging his heels in deep here. He's not merely saying, you know, I don't think this is a good proposition for the economy of Egypt. Can we rethink this whole strategy of you leaving? This is, this is defiance and arrogance and hard-heartedness showing out of the words and the actions of Pharaoh. It is defiance against God's claim of authority over all his universe. It is a declaration that God has no power and sovereignty over the individual named Pharaoh. Actually, not named Pharaoh, titled Pharaoh. His name is never given. It's a point in the book of names that Pharaoh's nameless. He declares God's prophetic word to be a lie, his prophets to be liars, and then he declares himself to have the real word of power. More than that, though, as we, as we lay out the defiance and these prophetic words he gives, he doesn't stop there. He has not only declared war, if you can say it that way, against God in his right of authority, God in his power over people, and God in his prophetic word, he's also declaring war against God's people, the Lord's people. It's, it makes sense rationally that the Lord would take, and, or excuse me, the Lord that Pharaoh would take, and having subdued Israel and successfully subdued them with slavery, that when there's a little bit of disobedience, that he just doubles down and adds more pressure on the slavery. I mean, it worked, right? Like, he got the room to be quiet when he started the slavery, you know, program, and he needs the whole room to quiet down because they're starting to get a little bit rambunctious, and he says, okay, so we're going to do more of it. But it's oppressive. Uh, <clears throat> you, like me, probably don't have expertise in ancient brick making. But uh, having the joy of getting paid to do research all week, so thank you for that gift. It really is a joy. I was telling some other pastors who are kind of getting a little grumpy about their work. I'm like, people pay you to read your Bible. Like, come on, guys. It can be hard as a pastor, but what a blessing. So I get to read about brick making last week. So, so if you don't make bricks with straw, and, and think like wheat, when you, take, when you take the head of the wheat off and you're left with a long stalk in the ground, during the harvest time, they would collect that straw, that, that um, kind of excess, the, 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 the woody parts of a lot of these vegetables and plants they would grow, and they would store them, probably grind them up because it works much better when it's more of a fine, uh, finely chopped, smaller piece. And they would add them to bricks, and then when the bricks dry, rather than the clay material kind of being brittle and pulling apart a little bit as it shrinks, it works as a binder and holds that brick. It's a much harder, more solid brick. So now, harvest likely being passed, Pharaoh is saying, you don't have access to my storage where all the straw is that we collected during the harvest time. You have to go through the whole of Egypt and find straw on your own and there really isn't any to be found. It's an onerous task of a miserable nature that's going to require a huge amount of administrative headache to send runners through the whole land to find chaff and straw that can be appropriate for brick making, to then ship it back to the places you're making the brick and use that all without losing any production quantity or quality. And if you don't do that, what are we going to do with you? If you look, it's really clear they, they were getting beaten. They're physically getting beaten. That's part of what they 
um, suggests in the middle of the text here, in the middle of the chapter, that, that when Pharaoh responds to their poor performance, he beats the foreman. He says, why are you idle? Why are you being lazy? Which is nonsense. So, so here's Pharaoh's response. I don't care who God claims to be in position. He has no power over me. His prophetic word is a lie, and I will turn and punish his people for following him and being loyal to him. There's some levels of, of I think, um, foreshadowing that Scripture is giving us when Moses says, let us go because God will bring pestilence on us and the sword is indicating to Pharaoh that this is not negotiable. Like God wants us to go, and if we don't, we will be in trouble with our God. This isn't just us merely saying, hey, give us a break, give us two days of vacation so we can like have some you know, retreat center moment. This is, this is God saying we must go. We know then that the people who experience pestilence and the sword are not ultimately Israel. It's Pharaoh who has the hard heart that won't let Israel go, even though they have the risk of that. Okay, so this is dealing with first defiance. Now I want you to look at discouragement as we just kind of walk through the text here. Uh, look at how Israel responds to this. In chapter 5, verse 29, 21, they come and they say to Moses and Aaron, the Lord, look on you and judge. Now here's a good and a bad in this moment. Because as we see these people dealing with discouragement, they're asking Yahweh, the, the name of the Lord that they've just learned recently in their history, and they're still holding some sense of fidelity and faith in him. They haven't turned from the Lord. They're asking the Lord to judge Moses and Aaron. You know, so this, this kind of infant faith that they have isn't totally lost, but they are not happy with Aaron and Moses. You've made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh, and you've put a sword in their hand to kill us. Liars and discouragement go hand in hand. When you're discouraged, you need to be careful not to lie to yourself. There is almost nothing true in that complaint. If you read chapter 1 carefully, Israel already stinks to Pharaoh. What is Pharaoh doing to all the baby boys? He's killing them with the sword, essentially. I mean, sword is a metaphor for death. It is not as though Moses and Aaron go talk to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh's like, oh, wow, my best friends are turning against me. I used to really care about Israel. Now I don't. He's an oppressive, genocidal king. He has no love for Israel. He despises Israel. And when Moses and Aaron go to him, he doesn't change anything. He just increases the intensity of his policies. But Israel, who've been kind of um, used to, with almost a century of oppression, a new state of existence where they are living under the hand and the pressure of Pharaoh's constant affliction and genocide of the baby boys have become so accustomed to this, they've established a new normalcy that when the, when the temperature goes up a little bit, they are not okay with that increase. But this is not Moses' fault. I mean, this is Pharaoh gaslighting at its best, right? This is an abusive, oppressive man doing his work well as an abuser, right? He is oppressive, he is a murderer, he is taking advantage, and he is fleecing Israel for all of the gain he can get for his government. And they say, please let up, and he doubles down and says, and it's your fault for asking. This is a wicked man. But in that moment of discouragement where you feel that pressure and you've just literally been beaten, discouragement is real. So just like truth to kind of like tuck in your pocket for later, not really the point of the text, but often suffering comes with obedience. Like that is such a foreign concept to our modern shallow Christian desires. Like sometimes when you obey God, it's actually painful. God does not promise comfort for those who keep his commands. He promises his presence, not physical comfort. He promises divine aid. He promises eternal life. But in this present life, you and I are going to suffer at times, especially when we obey. 
And Israel feels it, and they're immediately saying, hey, Moses and Aaron, whatever you did, man, fix it, and may the Lord judge you if you don't. They're deeply discouraged and hurting. And they've bought into a little bit of a lie. I want you to look at in chapter 6, verse 9, even Moses is struggling with this. So in verse 9, Moses spoke to them, but they did not listen because their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So Moses comes back and's like, hey, God is going to do this. He's a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. He is going to free us from Pharaoh. And their response is what? It's discouragement. Have you ever felt like that when you read God's word? Like your life is hard and hurting and you're looking for hope and you read God's word and it gives you hope. Like Psalm 93 this morning, talking about like the waters raging and the wind moving and God is still enthroned and it's meant to give you hope and you're like, well, why doesn't he stop the wind? And your heart just is sour, discouraged. It's literally like their spirit is small, right? Like they're, they're, they're crushed, they're defeated. It's not just them. Look at Moses. Chapter 5, verse 22. Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Now, if you, like me, read the word evil, uh, you probably think like sin. Like, God, why have you done um, sin or wickedness? But evil can simply mean trouble, and I think that's the right way to take the text here. That is, he's saying, God, why have you brought trouble on us? Why have you done this thing that, that led to really deep suffering? You might say this in the middle of like uh, a spouse or a loved one going through some sickness that might lead to death, like a cancer that might kill them and take them home. And you say, like, God, why are you bringing such trouble on us? He continues on. Why did you ever send me? For since I came, Pharaoh speaks in your, came to Pharaoh to speak in your name. He has done evil to the people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Whew. Talk about discouragement. When you're discouraged, you are impatient to get out of whatever's causing the discouragement. Like, Lord, fix the problem. You look up for your prayer and like, it's not fixed yet. Like, we expect immediate results from God when, when he gives us promises as though his promises have time limits and expiration dates with them. I, I, I think we should be sympathetic to people who are going through sorrows and they last. I mean, we can, we can all handle pressure in short doses and in small doses. But when God puts you in a place of affliction and you have to stay there and stay there and stay there, that gets hard. It's one thing to have a serious sickness where it passes in a few weeks. It's another thing to get a diagnosis of a lifelong ailment that is crippling to your social life or to your, to your comfort. It's just discouraging and sucks the joy out of your soul. Moses' impatience, though, is breathtaking, isn't it? This happened in a short period of time, and he says, God, why did you send me? You haven't delivered us at all. Like, I read chapter 4 with you guys a few weeks ago. Do you guys remember what chapter 4 said? Look back with me real quickly. Verse 21, the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh, all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you will say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. I, I, have, I have no idea, no insight into what Moses is thinking in terms of process and timeline, but he has to know God has not taken the firstborn son of Pharaoh yet. He reads that text and it says, I will harden his heart and he will refuse to let them go. Chapter 5, Moses refuses to let them go. Moses says, what? You haven't, you haven't got freedom for Israel yet? Like, 
Moses, God told you that he was going to refuse, and he refused. And you're saying, God, you haven't done your thing yet. No, that's exactly what God said would happen. But it's not what Moses was hearing. Have you ever had that glorious moment where you say something and someone hears something entirely different than you said? You need to tell your, your, your wife that you're going to work on the house this weekend. Saturday morning, 6 a.m. happens. She's like, hey, I thought you said you're going to work on the house. And you're like, what? It's Saturday. I'm going to start. I was thinking around 8 a.m. I, I mean, I guess technically this is the weekend starting. You say something, something else is heard. Well, here Moses is, is putting on God something God not only has not said, but something entirely different than the pattern God has laid out for him will happen. But he only hears, it seems to be, God's ultimate promise of bringing Israel out. Because that's ultimately what God says he's going to do. And Moses has condensed that into the immediate moment when I talk to Pharaoh, he's going to go free, or he's going to let us go free. Look at verse 12 then, how we see this recovery of past discouragements again. Verse 13. Excuse me, verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Moses really thinks his speech is what's going to move people. That his convincing words are going to do it. Now he has the divine promises, again in chapter 4, where God says, I will tell you what to say, and I will be with you and your mouth. So God is promising to empower his words and to give them the right content. And he's saying, listen, already we've started out on this mission, God, where you're going to give me the words and the power to speak, and everything's happening backwards. I say let the people go, and they're more enslaved than ever. I call people to believe and trust in you, and they're harder than ever. God, if, if Israel, who, who says they believe in you, won't even listen to me. How does Pharaoh, who doesn't even know you exist, how will he ever hear me? Can you sense that discouragement just wash through Israel? Okay, so we don't have time to unpack it all. I really think chapter 6 in, in verses 1 through 12 give us the answers. But I want you to consider that that we know where this is going, and I want you to consider the objections that Pharaoh brings up and how it brings sorrow. Okay, so who are you, God? What gives you the position? Who do you think you are to tell me you have the power to move me? Your word, your prophetic word is a lie. And then to turn against God's people. You know, nothing's changed. If you were to go down to a university and say, Hey, if you don't trust in Jesus Christ, you will go to hell. But if you trust in Jesus Christ who died to pay the penalty of what you would deserve by going to hell, if you trust in him, you'll be rescued and have eternal life. They will look at you and say, who's God that I would obey him? Why would I trust in him? And, and why would I believe his word? It's a pack of lies anyway. Like this, apologetics hasn't changed at all. Hey, the servant of the Lord to Pharaoh has the same battle that the servant of the Lord has today and has the same sorrows of discouragement pushing on them. Like you read Exodus 5 and 6, you should be thinking, this is us. Like this is our current modern world. And, and so let me just suggest to you that Pharaoh's problem is not intellectual. In other words, Pharaoh is not a refined professor of sciences who has all of these magisterial arguments that, that make all of the rest of us say, we are clearly dumb. We, we just bow before your superior intellect and, and clearly God doesn't exist. Right? Pharaoh is a king who probably is as smart as, as, as can be in some sense, but he's not crafting together rich arguments. I'm just going to suggest to you that if a king, an ancient king, 
is, is crafting together the same type of arguments you hear in universities by a whole bunch of eggheads today. The arguments actually aren't that substantial. They actually represent something different. In other words, if a guy in a pub in England has the same arguments as the pharaoh of Egypt thousands of years ago, as an egghead in a university has today, the issue's not the actual content of the arguments. The issue is something different. I think this text makes it clear. Pharaoh's problem was multiple. He was afraid. There is personal gain to be had. And there is personal pride in his heart. So you say, why does the guy in the pub in England, the Pharaoh in ancient Egypt, and the professor in the university, like, how do they come up with the same arguments? Because nothing has changed in the core ingredients of the human heart. That is, for Pharaoh to admit that God is God would bring about massive repercussions for him and his country. Ones in which he had no desire to entertain. Let me just tease it out into the modern and be real practical. If you admit that God is true, that he is the God of the Bible, and that the Bible is a true representation of our God, this means that you are liable for eternal judgment if you don't turn from your sin and trust in him. It means that your whole life should be lived in an absolute pursuit of what pleases him most. It means that your own thoughts, your ideals, your principles are meaningless unless they submit to and agree with God's. It means that you are morally culpable. That means you should be held accountable for the things you do. And God says he will judge. Those are terrifying propositions for a man who has spent his whole entire career killing babies, which is exactly who Pharaoh is. It means that he, rather than merely releasing Israel go, should escort them with a military transport to the land that God has promised them. It means that he's going to lose the financial powerhouse of free slavery that has millions of people in bondage to him. Chapter 1 says he's afraid. Chapter 1 indicates it's not just fear. He actually dislikes God and God's program and God's people. So as you and I interact with the world and we inevitably feel the pressure or the discouragement that comes, I think it's helpful to know that the primary battles of evangelism, the primary battles the church faces in advancing the gospel and church planting and admissions, the primary battles even within your own home are not intellectual battles. They're battles because we are rebels and we do not like the king of kings to tell us what to do. Or hold us accountable. <clears throat> this is helpful then for my own heart. Why do I struggle with sin, Mark? And the answer coming back to me from God's word is, because my heart likes sin. And I do not like to obey God when he tells me not to sin. The problem is not, generally speaking, information. When I interact with people who are struggling with sin, Rarely do they say something like, oh, I didn't know being unkind to my kids was wrong. They don't say things like, ah, oh, yeah, I, I, I guess I never really thought that stealing from my boss was something I shouldn't do. They don't say things like that. The guy who's struggling with, with moral purity on a cell phone isn't usually thinking like, oh, I never thought it was wrong to look at naked women before. Now I know. He's not saying that. And that's, that's the point. Like, whether it's a man in England in a pub or a professor in, in his classroom in a university in the U.S., the issue is not usually knowledge. It's that the human heart raises its fist to God and says, I will not submit. And so I'm calling upon all of you to think in terms of your own heart and examine when you see areas of failure and struggle, and you start with 
an adoration and a love and a submission to the Lord as the pursuit. That you evaluate for faith that he is good and kind. I mean, consider this. Like, if we could just appeal to Pharaoh and tell him who our beloved Savior is, would Pharaoh be better being his own king or submitting to King Jesus? Like, think about who our God is. Our God who makes us and holds us together with his powerful word, who sustains us by actively holding us together, sent his son to be born to walk among sinners so that the king of kings could die to save us sinners. Your king loves you that much. Do you think he's ever going to give you a command that is not something that's flowing from that heart of affection and concern for you? Do you think he's ever going to ask you to do something merely for his benefit, even though it actually isn't for your good? No. But your heart will tell you he is. Because your hearts are a lying, rebellious heart when we live in sin. And if we aren't sanctified by the washing of God's word, our hearts believe these lies. And so we have young men struggling with impurity on their phones. We have women who are just harsh to their kids. We have people that are probably stealing from their bosses, although I don't know anyone. Just These are the sins we struggle with. This is the life we live because we forget that the issue is not I need to understand why lying is wrong. We need to remember that our king who is good calls us to obey him whether or not you think it's wrong. That you redefine your life by his guidance. Let me just end, I think, on, on two calls to see the power of this text in the sense of the call to Pharaoh. I already read chapter 4, verse 21. Let me read it again to you. The Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I put in your power, but I will, what? I will do this. I will harden his heart. I will do this. We come to chapter 5. Pharaoh, you can almost see it, like kind of gets angry, a little bit bowed up. I will not do that. Oh, wow. Where'd that hard heart come from? Do you catch the irony? Like God says, I will harden his heart. Pharaoh's like, my heart is hard. He will not make me do what I want to do. Wait, Pharaoh, your hard heart is exactly what he said he's going to do to you. You are doing exactly what God says he was going to accomplish through you. Pharaoh, in fact, in defying God and bowing up in rebellion, is bringing to fruition God's unbreakable word and proving God's incredible power and showing God's right to rule. Isn't that amazing? How would you not, if you're Israel, see this and find encouragement? Well, you try to feel encouragement when your husband comes home beaten and broken because he's a foreman who can't possibly get Israel to produce what it's supposed to produce. And he's got to go work tomorrow again. That's discouraging. But man, if you can see what God is doing, and see the way that God is bringing to completion his plan to glorify his name, rescue his people, and do them good, and bring them out of Egypt with all of the wealth of Egypt and the press of Egypt to get out of the land, you would be worshiping instead of being discouraged. But how often? We are in genuine hurts. And we've been given enough scripture that we have eyes to see past the hurts. But we are discouraged. We are hurting. And we fail to look at our Savior. We fail to trust in his kindness, in his sovereign plan. Sometimes we struggle with submission to him, and our own hearts look more like Pharaoh's than they should. Psalm 2 is an encouraging psalm. I won't read it in its entirety. But it, it might perhaps give us a little bit of instruction as well. He starts with, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves 
and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed. Listen, it is nothing new that the unsaved, unbelieving, untrusting heart doesn't like God, doesn't want God nor his people. This is not new. The psalm continues, God is not threatened by this. Look at the Lord's response. Verse 4, he who sits in heaven laughs. I mean, I'm not a particular fan of like all cartoons, but I'm just picturing a cockroach. I think Jiminy Cricket's actually a grasshopper, but whatever he is, raising its fist to me. I'm not worried about this thing. If I could hear that little cockroach squeak out a, 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 a feisty little, you can't hurt me, I would be laughing as my foot crushed it. <laughs> How much more insignificant is Pharaoh raging against the Lord, lifting his fist to heaven, saying, who is Yahweh? The psalm continues, verse 10, warning the kings. Let me back up even a little bit. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. God's sovereign right to give his son, the incarnate, the king of Israel, the inheritance of all the nations and all the world. Right? That's exactly what's happening here. Right? Like, you are my son, verse 7. He gives him the nations as their possession, verse 8. You shall break, speaking of these kings and the nations, you shall break them with a rod of iron, dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise and be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Pharaoh needed to hear that. Did you hear that warning? Be warned, rulers of the earth, serve the Lord, lest you perish in the way or in the Red Sea. You are not going to go toe-to-toe with God and win any more than a cockroach beats me. In fact, the cockroach has a much better chance. So what do you do? Kiss the son and speaks of loyalty and subjection like to a king. Kiss the son, serve the Lord with fear and rejoicing. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. There are times where our experiences do not feel consistent with what scripture says are true, right? So like Israel, they feel the sweetness of God's refuge in chapter five. They're beaten. They're thrown out of Pharaoh's palace. They're oppressed. They're enslaved. Their children have the threat of death hanging over them. They don't feel like God is a refuge. That's why God calls us to believe. Because when circumstance and experience call us in that moment to distrust God, it's actually proving our faith. Like in small moments, God allows us to suffer. And we know that this is true, or Jesus would never say things like, take up your cross. He would say, get in your chariot and leave your 18-chariot garage and your pool and your mansion looking over the Mediterranean. Right? Like, like he would call us to, to wealth and prosperity and privilege. Instead, he says, take up your cross. So when life tells you that God is not worth trusting, life, the experience of this sin-cursed world, are giving you an opportunity for you to kiss the Son, declare he's worth it, submit to him, and find refuge in him. Do you trust in Jesus Christ? The entire text could probably be framed with who is the Lord. 
the world is defiant and God's people may be discouraged, the answer is to know the Lord and trust in him. In the middle of discouragement, trust in him. If you're threatening defiance or your heart is tempted towards defiance, submit to the son, kiss the son, find refuge in him, serve him with fear and gladness. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for our time together this morning, Father, as we gather together to worship you. We thank you for the rain that makes the grass, the crops, the trees grow. It's such a blessed thing to live in a world where we have summer to warm us up and winter to cool us down. Thank you for the seasons. Father, I thank you for our church family and the friendship and the joy that we experience together. I ask that this afternoon, those families that are hosting others will find joy and privilege in serving your people. Lord, thank you for bringing us together today. We thank you more for Jesus Christ than anything like weather or friends. We thank you so much for the King of Kings who died for us, his servants. We thank you that he was willing to suffer as a sinner even though he is righteous. That we who are sinners might be rewarded even though we are not as righteous. Lord, we thank you for this text in which you have exposed and used Pharaoh whose rebel heart declares all sorts of intellectual claims that are hollow because he merely did not want to obey. Lord, thank you for teaching us through his rebellion, your trustworthiness, your faithfulness, your power to move the human heart to your will. Lord, thank you for warning us about discouragement and how it erodes faith. I would ask for those in here that are in this room, Father, that you might be kind to them. You may be kind to those who don't believe in Jesus Christ yet, who stand with Pharaoh, who may be in ignorance or in arrogance, will not submit to the King of Kings yet. Lord, I ask that you might open their eyes to see how sweet and good and glorious Jesus Christ is, and that by seeing who their King is, they might gladly and with faith follow him. Lord, for the rest here who already claim Christ, would you strengthen and secure our faith that we might always love him and live for him so that Jesus Christ might receive glory forever and ever through his people. Amen.